want you to think back for a moment to a time in your life when you went through a really hard season. Maybe it was a major health issue or a relational issue or family issue or crisis with a child or uh, I don't know, an addiction issue. Um, and maybe you don't have to think back very far. Maybe you're right smack dab in the middle of it right now. That verse that's on the screen, uh, most of us don't want to claim that verse. But unfortunately, that's the reality of living in a fallen world. And if you think back to that time, if you focus now on at least some time when you were in a lot of misery and pain and heartache and struggling, did you struggle honestly? I know I did. I have in the past. Being around people who weren't going through a hard time, who were going through maybe a blessed time. Did you struggle with thinking that other people don't have as many problems in life as you do? That they're living an easier life or they're more blessed than you are? And worse, you probably thought, some of them at least, really didn't deserve it. The real question is, did you struggle with believing though in the goodness of God during those times? Maybe you cried out like Jesus did, the why question. He, remember he cried it out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He yelled in his humanity. We all go through hard times. Some people, granted, grow through much more difficult times for a much longer season in life than other people do. And when those times come, like Job, we often question the justice, the fairness, and the goodness of God. So we're going to look at an Old Testament psalm this morning that experientially addresses what I've just been talking to you about. If you have a Bible, you can start to turn there. It's Psalm 73, but I'm not going to go there for just a minute. I'm going to continue the setup just for a minute. The psalm was written by a guy by the name of Asaph. He lived in Israel during part of the 40-year reign of King David and during the early years of David's son's reign, Solomon. So remember, Solomon built the temple. Now, Asaph was probably alive only for a small portion of the time the temple existed. So in this psalm, he's not probably going to the temple when he talks about going to a place where God is. He's going to somewhere else experientially where he can be alone with God. I want to make that clear. He was the nation of Israel's worship leader. That's a pretty distinguished position. He was responsible for corporate worship in Israel under David and Solomon. He wrote Psalm 73, though, during a very difficult time in his life. He was going through what I would call a Job-like season of suffering. We don't know from the psalm. We're not exactly sure why he's suffering or even how he's suffering, how, or what, what's going on in his life. But the suffering you'll see in the psalm in just a minute causes him to develop he openly confesses it as he reflects back on this time, a really bad attitude about God, about life, and about other people. His perspective on things was skewed. It was framed by his circumstances. We're going to see Asaph's attitude change during the psalm as he begins to see life from a different perspective, a perspective based not on a change of circumstances, but based on a deepening of his life relationship with God through prayer. Through prayer, he draws near to God. He's going to literally lay hold 
of at least some of God's perspective on his situation. And even though he's still suffering, his circumstances haven't changed, his attitude and his perspectives will change. Now I'm going to pull up a strange slide, strange of this talk at least. Probably a lot of you recognize this slide. It's a very, very famous picture. It's a photograph of Earth called the pale blue dot. It was taken by Voyager 1 on February 14th, 1990 from about 3.75 billion miles away from Earth in outer space. You can see that Earth is barely visible. It's that tiny pale blue dot in the Milky Way galaxy. It looks a little different out there from outer space than it does from down here in this gym in Fayetteville, Arkansas this morning, or even you're outside, or even if you're in a faraway place. I was in Israel, most of you know that, a couple of weeks ago. It looks a lot different than wherever you are on the planet this morning or wherever you've been. It's from outer space, not from the surface of planet. And by the way, we're just one little spinning globe among billions of other spinning globes in God's massive universe. Carl Sagan, the famous atheist and astrophysicist, loves to use this picture as evidence of the vastness of the universe and how insignificant we are and how ridiculous he thinks it is. We try to explain the bigness of the universe with our contrived notions of a God. Strangely enough, the picture has always had a very different effect on me. In fact, exactly the opposite. I think, Carl, that it's colossally illogical and naive to conclude that this vast universe could come from time, chance, and nothing as you believe. It smacks of a grand design. It smacks of rules. It smacks of a grand designer. But you know what? The slide I put up on the screen this morning, I put up there to illustrate a totally different point, though, than all of that. The point is this, simply. Things on Earth, and even Earth itself, looks very different depending on your perspective. So, before we go any further in the talk, I want to talk a moment about prayer, because that's the subject of Psalm 73. Some of you know that I have a talk that I love to give. I've probably given it a dozen times throughout the years, at least five or six times here at New Heights. It's my theology of prayer. And I know it flies in the face of some uh, comprehensive theologies about the Bible and about God, but I, I can argue the case very successfully biblically. And it goes like this. It's called prayer changes things. And if you recall, I shared with you three corollaries of this theology. And the first one, everybody will buy into. It's very simple. It's prayer changes the one who prays, first of all. That's what we're going to see today through Psalm 73. Prayer is going to draw Asaph near to God, and he's going to change as he prays and he draws near to God. No one will argue with that. The second one, it's not really that controversial either, but some people don't like it. I'll give you strong evidence that I had time this morning. I don't. I won't go into it from my own life. And from the Bible, lots and lots of stories of it. It goes like this. Prayer can change things in the here and now. It can change circumstances and outcomes of events happening right here on planet Earth. The third corollary, 
this little sermon or theology about prayer is a little more difficult for some of you to believe because you struggle with a supernatural prayer time. But the Bible writers didn't. And it's in the Bible, and I can tell you stories from the Bible that as evidence of this point, and from my own life too, it goes like this. Prayer can change things in a world we can't see, in the supernatural world of demons and angels. But I'm only going to emphasize the first point this morning. Today's scripture is a powerful case of prayer simply changing one man as he brings his troubles to God. When I pray and draw near to God, I'm changed every time. My thoughts, my attitudes, my feelings about God, my feelings about people, my feelings about my circumstance change. My will, my resolve, my words, my behavior changes the longer I connect and the closer I draw near to God. When we pray, our allegiances and our dependence on ourselves and earthly things fade and our allegiance and our dependence on Christ and the Holy Spirit that we're celebrating this morning at Pentecost increases. Prayer changes the way I think. It changes the way I act. It changes what I say. Lord Jesus, that needs to happen more often. It changes the way I relate to people. It allows me to gain God's perspective. So with all of that long introduction in mind, now let's look at Psalm 73 in light of those biblical truths that is shared with you. And I'll read and lightly exposit the text, all 28 verses. Stay with me as I go through this this morning. Asaph starts off, and it's a great place to start, by stating spiritual truth. He's trying to remind himself and the demons that are haunting him with doubt and confusion of certain eternal truths. Surely God is good, not only to Israel, but to those who are pure in heart. He's maintaining that he is pure in heart, that he's seeking God. And he believes in his mind. He knows it's true that God is good, but he's not experiencing God's goodness right now but he's reminding himself of that. And I would throw that out to you this morning as an instant application. When you're struggling, it's great to pray out loud alone and state truths that you know are true from Scripture and remind yourself and remind the demons that are messing with you that God is good and he's good to you. Number two, verse two. As for me, now he goes into his circumstances. My feet had almost slipped. He's speaking in spiritual terms. I nearly lost my spiritual foothold. For I began to look around and I started envying the circumstances of what he calls the arrogant, the non-God seekers, the people who weren't pursuing God. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he looks around and he sees that good things are happening to bad people and that just ain't right. Verse four, now he starts to exaggerate. He starts to draw irrational conclusions. And he starts to say things like we've all said. He starts to pout spiritually. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. And eh, not all of them. Maybe a few of them, but not all of them. They're free from common human burdens. Oh, not really. They're not plagued by human ills. He's starting to make irrational conclusions. Now he's going to say some things that are true about people that are running from God. 
that are depending on themselves, that aren't seeking God. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Pride is the root of all sin. They clothe themselves with violence. Many people that are wicked do violent things. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imagination has no limits. Well, they have a sin nature, and they're not interested in checking it, is what he's saying. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. They're bragging. And their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people, that means people that are not seeking God, turn to them. They drink up their waters in abundance. And they say, they kind of shake their fist at God. If you're out there, you don't know what I'm doing. You don't care. Does the Most High know anything? Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care and they go on amassing wealth. Now he's starting to exaggerate again. There's wealthy, godly people too. But he's looking at the wealth of those who are only pursuing wealth, that money is their God and pleasure and power and sex and pride. Surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure. Now he starts to feel sorry for himself and he's expressing it. I've wasted my time disciplining myself, doing well, I'm trying to do what's right. Surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. Verse 14, all day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. It sounds like he's suffering from some illness or physical ailment. Sounds like he's really struggling physically as well as maybe financially, but physically, verse 14 is an emphasis there. Verse 15, if I had spoken this poison out, you know, it's one thing for me to sin in my thought life and have a terrible attitude, but it's a whole nother thing that has a whole lot more detrimental effect when I start spewing that poison out on all of my family and all of my friends and all my associates. He said, at least I didn't do that. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed not only you and myself, but others around me, your children, he says. When I tried to understand all this, that God, what appears to be injustice on the earth, and there's tons of injustice. We live on a fallen planet, ruled to some degree by an an angel that rebelled a long time ago and our ancient ancestors joined that rebellion and we've been reaping the whirlwind ever since of hell and misery and heartache. He said, I couldn't understand it all. It troubled me deeply. Verse 17 is a key hinge verse in the text. Everything changes after this verse. Until what? Until I entered the sanctuary of God. That means the experiential presence of God. When I got alone with God, when I spent maybe hours, maybe days with God, then I began to understand some things. First of all, he understands that this little dot, as Rick Warren describes it, on a line that stretches throughout all eternity is just a little dot this life is. That there is an end game there's another destiny. I understood the final destiny of those who don't seek God. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they'll be destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. He's talking about judgment. Judgment's all over the Bible. You can't get away from it. And verse 20, they are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Verse 21, back to what he is now looking back on his circumstances. 
looking back on his bad attitude, he said, when my heart was grieved, my spirit was embittered. I had a bitter spirit toward you and toward other people. He said, that was stupid. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I wasn't a godly thinking rational person connected to the living God. When I got away from you, I got away from your presence until I came back to you and got into your presence. Then he starts emphasizing something else. Not just eternity with God, not just final judgment or final blessing, heaven or hell. He starts to emphasize the here and now. By the way, I've forgotten something. Verse 23 is another key verse. It's a hinge verse. Yet I am always with you. You see, he had the opportunity that he finally took advantage of to bring God into his circumstances. James Hawkins preached about this when he preached Psalm 34 a couple of weeks ago. He had that opportunity and he wasn't taking advantage of it. He said, I got you now and forever. You hold me by my right hand in the midst of my troubles. You're there holding me up. You guide me with your counsel. I can get your wisdom. I can tap into it. And afterwards, back to the end game, you're going to take me into glory. I'm going to spend eternity with you. Whom have I in heaven but you? David says this way, you're my one thing. Rich Mullins wrote a song about it. You're my one thing. And I don't just get you now. I get to experience you now and later, forever. Whom am I in heaven? The earth has nothing I desire beside you. That stuff I'm emphasizing is so important. That power, that money, that wealth, all that stuff, it's nothing compared to a relationship with the most powerful and wonderful and loving being in the universe. My flesh and my heart may fail. I may get sick and die. But God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion forever. And I'm going to find joy in the relationship. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, right now, it's good to be near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord. By the way, he is sovereign. <laughs> it is his universe. It is his pale blue of the eye. You are his. He did create you. He gets to make the rules. He is sovereign. And I'm, he's my refuge. And I'm going to tell of all of your deeds. So his response is going to be praise and worship. That's Psalm 73. Applications and comments. The word sanctuary in verse 17 is not the Hebrew word for temple. It literally means sanctuaries. Those things and places nearest to God. Again, it relates to God's experiential presence for Asaph. The place of the experiential presence of the living gods. Again, I'll go back to James' sermon on Psalms 34 a couple of weeks ago. We as believers don't have to suffer alone. We have access to God right now. Suffering in general, and this is not a talk primarily about suffering this morning. It's a talk about what to do in the midst of any kind of suffering. Suffering in general is somewhat of a mystery. We don't fully understand, I don't at least, all the reasons for our suffering or other people's suffering this side of heaven. But we can bring God into our suffering through prayer. So a question for you is, as we begin to make application, how can you draw nearer to God? How can you experience and encounter God more often, more deeply, more richly in all your circumstances, 
both the good times and the bad times. If Jesus said that all the law and all the teachings of the prophets had as their foundation two relationships, first and foremost with God, secondly with other people, and if Christianity is all about a relationship with God through His Son, enabled by His Spirit, then the only way that I can have God's perspective on my situation is to communicate with God regularly, which is possible. How can you improve your relationship with God? Well, intimacy with anyone, including God, is built on time, trust, and communication. So that when the hard time comes, and by the way, back to that promise Jesus made, Jim, in this world you will have trouble. Those times will come. You have God right there with you. So I want to talk for a few minutes about some things that might be hindering you from building a relationship or a deep relationship with God. And I've done this before. It's a list I've compiled. There's probably other things, and, and I may be missing it a little bit, but I hope this will help you. Again, number one, for me, busyness. Psalm 4610, Jim, be still and know that I am God. It's hard for me to be still, period. Anyone that knows me can tell you that. We have to slow down to create space for interaction with God. We have to schedule time with God. We live in a hurry, hurry, ding, ding world. I do. I have a habit of saying to myself, every day, throughout the day, whether things are going well or poorly, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Number two, second distraction, the communication with God, drawing near to God. Sinful lifestyle. I'm not going to preach at you hard about sin this morning. This is a hard enough talk, just talking about suffering. But violating the clear commands of Scripture and the ethos of God without even trying to participate with the Holy Spirit in life change is not very smart. Tolerating in ourselves habits of sin, and, and I'm not talking about perfection. Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 59 too. Jim, your sins have separated us, you from your God. It's talking about relational separation. Let me give you an example of one sin that I always harp on because uh, I've seen the devastation over and over. And I know there's the dozens of sins I could talk about this morning. I'll talk about one just for a second. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is the ultimate sin with Jesus. He definitely rated it above all others. It's a very significant sin. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. First thing he says coming out of the Lord's Prayer. Oh, by the way, Jim, you don't forgive, I don't forgive. That doesn't fit real well in my theological wheelhouse. I don't really want to know what that means. I just want to forgive people so that I can have a deep relationship with God that's not hindered by my unforgiveness. Third barrier to communication with God, distractive technology. We can all agree on this. Media of all forms, cell phones, computers, televisions, video, video games. Depending on where you get your stats, Americans aged seven and up spend four to eight hours a day looking at some sort of a screen. Parents, you really, really need to get a handle on this and monitor your kids' exposure to this stuff. Studies have shown this overexposure to distracted technology is changing our brain chemistry and our physiology, making it extremely difficult for us 21st century Westerners to concentrate in a contemplative way for significant periods of time without 
technological stimulation. And I would add making it difficult to connect deeply with God. Good news. Neuroscientists tell us that 12 minutes a day of attentive, focused, reflective prayer for eight weeks will change the physiology of your brain enough to be measured on a brain scan. That's from How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg and Robert Waldman based on scientific evidence. Number four, fourth barrier to communication with God, the voice of guilt. Satan wants you to be defined by your past. First John 1, 9. Confess your sins to God and embrace his forgiveness. One antidote for overwhelming or paralyzing guilt is heavy doses of praise and worship. Try praying some of the Psalms back to God, singing hymns and praise songs daily. Number five, lack of persistence. Familiarity with the shepherd's voice, John 10 requires regularity in coming to him. Remember the story of the persistent widow and the judge. If you don't know it, look it up. Luke 18, 1 through 8, Jesus told it. Jeremiah 29, 13. I'll go Old Testament on you. Jim, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God is a lover. He says it over and over, and he wants to be pursued. So I encourage you to begin to pursue God. I'm going to tell you a story now uh, that I think you're going to enjoy. It's a story. We all want to hear stories about other people who suffer, especially if we're suffering right now or we have suffered. So when I was traveling to Israel, I hate airplane rides especially 12-hour airplane rides. And I can't sleep sitting up in coach without drugs. And I tried that, and it didn't even work really well. I got some sleep from uh, whatever it was I was taking, but not enough. So I read most of the night. And fortunately, someone had given me a really good book about a year ago, and I hadn't had time to read it. It was an interesting title. I'd never heard this story before, so I'm going to tell you the story that I read on my plane ride. It was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's about two men. The first one, most of you know really well, if we could pull up that picture of Charles Spurgeon. That's Charles Spurgeon. He was born June 19th, 1834 in Kelvindon, England. He died June 31st, 1892. He's 57 years old. He died in Minton, France. He professed Christ at age 15 in a primitive Methodist church that he attended only once when he was stranded in a snowstorm while traveling. He started preaching a year later at age 16. During his lifetime of 57 years, he founded an orphanage, a house for the poor, a college to train preachers, which still operates today. He pastored the largest church in the world at that time, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for 38 years. He is a prolific writer of books and pamphlets and devotional magazines, posters, and even hymns. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people came to Christ through the ministry of this man, and many hundreds of thousands more were blessed by his ministry. During his lifetime, he had a significant outreach to the poor and the working class in England. He is described by theologians as the prince of preachers. 
He was largely self-educated and held no formal degree. He was adored by hundreds of thousands of people, and yet he was ridiculed his entire life by the press and the intellectuals of his day. He wrote and preached fervently against American slavery, even though he had not been to America. Southern slaves prior to the Civil War, Southern states, excuse me, Southern slave states prior to the Civil War had regular book burnings of his writings about American slavery. He suffered his entire life with depression, which was severe at times. He was bedridden for a lot of his middle age years and the later years of his life with severe gout and other illnesses. When he died, an estimated 100,000 people viewed his body after his death. His funeral procession was two miles long and tens of thousands more lined the street as it passed. His wife, Susanna, was the love of his life, a great source of encouragement to him, but she too suffered chronic pain and debilitating illness all of her adult life after the birth of their twin sons, their only children. And even though Spurgeon suffered greatly throughout most of his life, even preaching a want at time for an hour or more, leaning on the podium, standing on one leg was in intense pain, he still did not complain. He was not a whiner. He believed strongly in God's sovereignty. Remember Asaph's line? And even though he didn't know why he had so much opposition, so much illness and so much depression, he believed that his troubles, scripture, were light and momentary and not to be compared to the glory that awaited him. And he kept working with every ounce of his being to advance the kingdom of God as long as he was able. Sustained by a deep awareness of God's presence with him in his suffering and in his ministry. Second person that I read about this past two weeks. And you probably have never heard of this guy. Most of you haven't. His name is Thomas Johnson. He was born August the 7th, 1836 in Rock Raymond, Virginia. He died in 1921 at the age of 84 years. He was born into slavery, separated from his mother at an early age and lived in horrible conditions where he suffered greatly as a slave on a Virginia tobacco farm for the first 28 years of his life. He became a Christian in his late teens through the mentoring of an older slave by the name of Ezekiel, who was a father figure to him. The slaves on this particular plantation were not allowed to meet freely for church. But Thomas would sneak out with other slaves at night to meet in Ezekiel's shack and pray and read and recite scripture and whisper old hymns written by other slaves. He came to Jesus while quietly singing, they couldn't sing out loud, an old black spiritual called Steal Away Home. And that was the name of the book I read. The song emphasizes that even in the midst of terrible suffering, we can steal away to Jesus. The experiential presence of Jesus, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. It's a reminder, too, that we're not home yet. The two things that Asaph wrote about. Hear a few words from the song. Steal away. Steal away to Jesus. Steal away. Steal away home. I ain't got long to stay here, so steal away. Steal away to Jesus. 
Thomas developed a deep relationship with Jesus during those years of slavery and abuse. The Civil War finally freed Thomas from the bondage of slavery. After Lee's surrender, Thomas stayed a little while in Richmond, Virginia, where he met the love of his life, Henrietta. Then he and Henrietta migrated to Chicago, where he became a respected African-American preacher in the black community there. But Thomas became intrigued with a white preacher from England named Charles Spurgeon. And he read many of his sermons and aspired to attend his famous preacher's college in London, England. He first heard of Spurgeon when his master on the Virginia plantation had taught how much drive him to a Spurgeon book burning in the carriage, which was a common event, as I've already noted, in the pre-Civil War South. Thomas wrote Spurgeon from Chicago and inquired about a scholarship to his preacher's college. And Spurgeon responded favorably. Thomas raised the money for he and Henrietta to travel to England to live and he became the first black man to graduate from Spurgeon's famous college for preachers. In England, though, he got more than an education. He and Henrietta became close friends with Charles and Susanna Spurgeon, a friendship that would, for Thomas, last until Spurgeon's death. Thomas was there by Spurgeon's side in France when Charles Spurgeon passed in the arms of his beloved Jesus. Spurgeon had opened up to Thomas during their years together in ways he had never opened up to anyone else, and Thomas had reciprocated. Even though their sufferings were quite different, they shared a sort of history of sacred suffering that bonded the two men together for life. Thomas' great ambition was to go to Africa as a missionary, which he eventually did. But he encountered there more suffering in the form of a personal debilitating illness and the loss of his beloved Henrietta to illness as well. He enjoyed some ministry success there, but eventually he returned to England. He remarried and he continued to preach and write until his death in 1921. Like Spurgeon, he didn't complain of his many troubles in this world, but he too looked forward to the day that Asaph was looking forward to, that Spurgeon looked forward to, that I hope you're looking forward to, when he could be with his friend in a better place, trusting that Jesus would do what he said he would do and make all things new and right, and he will. So if you want to read more about it, the book is Steal Away Home. A friend recommended it, as I said, about a year ago. And I finally got around to reading it. It was written by Matt Carter and Aaron Ivey, both pastors at Austin Stone Community Church in Austin, Texas. It's a great read. So why am I telling you these stories this morning? Just to remind you, like Asaph, like Jesus, like Paul, like Charles Spurgeon, like Thomas Johnson, and thousands of Jesus followers since, in this world we will have trouble, but we're all called to remain faithful. So if you're going through a hard time for whatever reason this morning, maybe it's a result of your own poor choices. <laughs> maybe you've sown to the wind and now you're reaping the whirlwind. I've done some of that. Maybe it's bad genes. <laughs> or maybe it's caused by someone else's sin and abuse like Thomas. Or maybe it's just the result of living on a sin-cursed planet. Maybe it's your health, your marriage, your job, your kids, or something else. Remember, God loves you.
He loves you. You always have the option of engaging and connecting deeply with God. And remember too, this life is not all there is. Keep the end in mind as you go through life. If you know Jesus personally, then heaven awaits you. And even in the midst of terrible suffering, you can go to God daily and ask him for his perspective. Remember this too, it helps. <laughs> he came to this planet once as a human being himself. And he experienced harassment, opposition, rejection, persecution, torture, and death. In his humanity, again, he even screamed why from a Roman cross, hanging between two career criminals. Jesus understands. I encourage you to seek him daily. Many times, God can use our suffering for good. Paul went through all kinds of sufferings in his life. He even planted the church as a result of a lengthy illness. You may have missed that in scripture. Check out Galatians 4, 14, excuse me, Galatians that's the can't be right. There's not 14 chapters in Galatians. I hope it's Galatians 4, 13 and 14, but it's in there. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, that God comforts us if we draw near to him in all our trouble, if we'll let him, so that we can learn to comfort other people in their sorrows as well, in their struggles. Again, someday, these passing sorrows will be no more. And they can't be compared to the glory and the pleasure that you will enjoy for all of eternity. So again, like Paul, Asaph, Charles, and Thomas, we can have a relationship with God both now and forever. Close with two quotes. One from Augustine. Living well depends on the reordering of our loves. Hear that. Hear that. You got to think about that, man. You want to reorder your life? Reorder your loves. Your affections. In order to reorder your life in a meaning way, meaningful way, you have to develop an intimate love relationship with God and make Him your first love. That takes time, proactivity, and persistence. Prayer, again, is a discipline that brings joy and blessing as you connect deeply with God. Last quote, and I'm done. Tim Keller, you ought to be experiencing your theology, not just believing it, not just espousing it, but experiencing your theology. If you say you have a personal relationship with God, you ought to be experiencing that relationship regularly in the good times and in the bad times. I'm done. We're going to worship that great God right now. I invite you, if you're on the prayer team, to come on up. This is our time to relate to one another and to pray for one another and minister to one another as we worship. If you want prayer for any reason, seek your brothers and sisters. If you want to go pray for someone you don't know, go do it. This is a free time. Communion is available. If you didn't pick it up when you came in, it's available at the tables. Go get it. You can take it at any time during the next 15 minutes or so of worship. If you want to be baptized, come see me. We can do that this morning over here. But right now, let's stand and engage our great God in worship.